According to science, how many mass extinctions have taken place on Earth? I'm Sean Riley. I'm Brooke Fouts Riley. Welcome to Trivial Context. Brooke and I spent the last week studying, summarizing, and sculpting our report for today. Based on one of the six trivia categories picked randomly last week. This week, it is science and nature. Nice. I want to say six. I can't remember if like we're on our sixth mass extinction, so there have been five, mm-hmm. or if there are six. Okay. I'm going to just say seven. <laughs> this is not Price is Right. <laughs> I, think I, I think I went with six. Okay, it's five. And we may now be experiencing a sixth. I'm going to take it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to say you I can got take it. it. <laughs> All right. Because I got the opening question correct first, I will have my report first. And I will say that this has been, or this will be, my longest report ever. And I also want to say up top, before I ask my opening question, this is a bit of a darker topic than I would normally cover. So here's your PG-13 warning or whatever. (laughs) If you wish to skip ahead to Brooke's report, you can find time codes in the description of this episode. I like, just a reminder that this cycle is for the other person. Yeah. And I don't really like dark things, so I'm very curious to know what this is. Brooke, who is Dr. Death or the Angel of Death? Have you heard of them? Mm-hmm. Okay. Today we're going to be talking about <laughs> Harold Shipman. Battled Harry. Battled Harry. Harold Shipman was signed on the hospital staff of Donnybrook Medical Center in Hyde, England. This was the second practice in his medical journey, and despite a hiccup in his first practice, which we will go over in a few minutes... Harold began to ingratiate himself as a hard-working doctor who enjoyed the trust of his patients and colleagues alike. Although he had a reputation for arrogance amongst junior staff, he remained there for almost two decades. That's nearly 20 years. <laughs> almost. It is at this point that the narrative picks up. Enter Kathleen Grundy, an active, wealthy, 81-year-old widow. Exit Kathleen Grundy as she was found dead in her home on June 24th, 1998. I was a month old. This is, yeah, much more recent than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, She was found dead following an earlier visit by Shipman. Her daughter, Angela Woodruff, was advised by Shipman that an autopsy was not required and Grundy was buried in accordance with her daughter's wishes. But then something suspicious happened. Oh, no. So why don't we pause here. Brooke, what is your relationship with true crime? Love to watch from a distance. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. I am one of those classic girls listening to the True Kind podcast. Mm-hmm. My favorite show in first grade, Murder, She Wrote. That's true, yeah. I've always just really, really liked murder shows and true crime. Again, would love to keep it at a distance. Yes. <laughs> and yet... Do you like horror movies? Hate them. <laughs> yeah. Cannot stand. I don't know what it is about it. If it's fake, terrifying. Real life? Tell me about it. <laughs> All right, and final question. Now that we're kind of a little bit into the story, is this ringing any more bells? Yeah. Again, surprised with how soon, like how recent yeah. it was. I thought this was long time ago. Like H.H. H. Holmes times? Yeah, kind of. Like 1800s? Wow. Or 1900s. I don't, I, I guess just earlier. Just earlier. <laughs> just, just earlier than the 90s. <laughs> Late 90s at that. 
Yeah. Now back to the... Before my lifetime. (laughs) Yeah. Now back to the story. Angela Woodruff, the daughter of Kathleen Grundy, was a lawyer by trade who handled her mother's estate. After her death, she was surprised to find a second will had been drafted. This will left everything Kathleen Grundy had, about 400,000 pounds, she was wealthy, Mm -hmm. to Harold Shipman, her general practitioner and seemingly the last person to see her alive. That is suspicious. Yeah. So let's go into this Harold Shipman. He was a native-born Englishman in 1946. He was a middle child, and apparently his mother favored him over his siblings. Quote, She instilled in him an early sense of superiority that tainted most of his later relationships, leaving him an isolated adolescent with few friends. Mm, That's how it starts. It really is. (laughs) And this is how it's really driven home. A pivotal moment in young Harold's life occurred at the age of 17 when his mother was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. He willingly oversaw her care as she declined. Fascinated by the positive effect the administration of morphine had on her suffering until she succumbed to the disease on June 21st, 1963. Devastated by her death, he was determined to go to medical school and he was admitted to Leeds University for training two years later. He also met his wife, his future wife, Primrose, when he was 19, and they were married when she was 17 and five months pregnant with their first child. Sticky situation. (laughs) So, medical school. Soon after this, we arrive to that hiccup I alluded to earlier in his first medical practice. He initially thrived as a family practitioner before allegedly becoming addicted to the painkiller pethidine. He forged prescriptions for large amounts of the drug, and he was forced to leave the practice when caught by his medical colleagues in 1975, at which time he entered a drug rehab program. In the subsequent inquiry, he received a small fine and a conviction for forgery. A few short years later, he re-entered the medical field, and we are all caught up. Do you know if you can do that? I don't, actually. I didn't (laughs) look into that. Yeah, he must (laughs) have... That feels... Like maybe this was in the time where... Yeah, either it wasn't the time, or maybe he had to jump through hoops to do that, or maybe you can. I don't know. We will never know. (laughs) Email in. (laughs) Now that we're caught up, let's keep going. Angela Woodruff was convinced the second will was a forgery. As you would. Yeah. And she was convinced that Shipman had murdered her mother and forged a document to benefit from her death. She alerted the local police where Detective Superintendent Bernard Postles quickly came to the same conclusion. This was the second investigation into this possible murderer, as a few years previous, the local undertaker noticed that Dr. Shipman's patients seemed to be dying at an unusually high rate and exhibited similar poses in death. Most were fully clothed and usually sitting up or reclining on a settee. He was concerned enough to approach Shipman about this directly, who reassured him that there was nothing to be concerned about. Later, another medical colleague, (laughs) Dr. Susan Booth, also found this the similarity disturbing, and the local coroner's office was alerted, who then contacted the police. A covert investigation followed, but Shipman was cleared, as it appeared that his records were in order. The inquiry failed to contact the General Medical Council or check criminal records, which would have yielded evidence of Shipman's previous record. Of forgery. Yes. Which I guess at that point, nothing had been forged. So up until... He forged prescriptions for the pethidine. Yeah. I mean... There were no wills forged up until Correct. Catherine's. Correct. So that's what caused the final red flag, I guess. Yeah. So up until that point, he was just killing willy-nilly. 
Yeah. So Angela not, Woodruff not the, not the is absolutely the hero of the story. To be like, something's not right. And to follow it up is scary. And it's about your mom. Yeah. I think that like, is... Up close and personal. I don't know this Angela Woodruff, but I would say that that was a big motivation. <laughs> <laughs> so this time, with Angela Woodruff, the police were hot on his trail. Kathleen Grundy's body was exhumed, and a postmortem revealed that she had died on a, of a morphine overdose administered within three hours of her death, precisely within the time frame of Shimon visiting her. Shimon's home was raided, yielding medical records, an odd collection of jewelry, and an old typewriter which proved to be the instrument upon which Grundy forged will had been produced. So I will say quickly, from this point forward, I quote pretty extensively from Biography.com and Britannica, as what's following is mostly just facts stated stated out. Open quote. <laughs> it was immediately apparent to the police from the medical records seized that the case would extend further than the single death in question, and priority was given to those deaths it would be most productive to investigate. They focused mainly on victims who had not been cremated. I thought about that. They're cremated. He got away with it. Cases where they died following a home visit by shipment were also given priority. Shipman himself had urged families to cremate their relatives in a large number of cases, stressing that no further investigation to their deaths was necessary. Even in instances where these relatives had died of causes previously unknown to the families, in situations where they did raise questions, Shipman would provide computerized medical notes that corroborated his cause of death pronouncements. Police later established that Shipman would, in most cases, alter these medical notes directly after killing the patient to ensure that his account matched the historical records. What Shimon had failed to grasp was that each alteration of the records would be time-stamped by the computer, <laughs> enabling police to ascertain exactly which records had been altered. Isn't it crazy that people were caught before technology? I know! Like, now I feel like it's really hard to get away with things. But back before, there was, like, DNA or yeah. computers or anything like that. You could just kill willy-nilly. Also, I've said willy-nilly too many times. I apologize. Have you? <laughs> Yeah, apparently I'm really feeling that phrase. Okay. I always think about Sherlock. I'm like, yeah, you have to be almost superhuman to, to do it. anything. Yeah. yeah. And of course, that's historical. I'm just a huge idiot. Yeah. And like, that's fiction. So that's probably not true, but that's, yeah. I agree with you. Like, that's my feeling. No video cameras, no like cell phone records, no DNA. Yeah. So, following extensive investigations, which included numerous exhumations and autopsies, the police charged Shipman with 15 individual counts of murder on September 7th, 1998, Whoa. as well as one count of forgery. Hiding... Forgery that did him in. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Al Capone, how they could only get him on tax evasion, but hey, they got him. Yeah. So hiding behind his status as a caring family doctor, it is almost impossible to establish exactly when Shipman began killing his patients, or indeed exactly how many died at his hands and his denial of all charges did nothing to assist the authorities. Indeed, his killing spree was only brought to an end thanks to the determination of Angela Woodruff. Go, Angie. Speaking of, Angela appeared as the first witness. Her forthright manner and account of her unremitting determination to get to the truth impressed the jury, and attempts by Shipman's defense to undermine her were unsuccessful. As the trial progressed onto other victims and the accounts of their relatives, the pattern of Shipman's behavior became much clearer. A lack of compassion, disregard for the wishes of attending relatives, and reluctance to attempt to revive patients were bad enough. But another fraud also came to light. He would pretend to call the emergency services in the presence of relatives, then cancel the call, 
then canceled the call when the patient was discovered to be dead. Telephone records showed that no actual calls were made. Speaking of scary movies that you don't like to watch, we should watch What Lies Beneath mm-hmm. with Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer. And he, he does that. Spoilers. <laughs> yeah. He calls the police on himself, but he just dials 411 instead of 911. And then he tries to kill her. Finally, evidence of his drug hoarding was introduced with false prescribing to patients who didn't require morphine, over-prescribing to others who did, as well as proof of his visits to the homes of the recently deceased to collect up unused drug supplies for, in air quotes, disposal. Mm. Shimon's haughty demeanor throughout the trial did nothing to assist his defense in painting a picture of a dedicated healthcare professional. Despite their attempts, his arrogance and constantly changing stories when caught out in obvious lies did nothing to endear him to the jury. Which is fair enough. (laughs) Following a meticulous summation by the judge and a caution to the jury that no one had actually witnessed Shipman kill any of his patients, the jury were sufficiently convinced by the testimony and evidence presented and unanimously found Shipman guilty on all charges, 15 counts of murder and one forgery, on the afternoon of January 31st, 2000. What a way to bring in the new millennium. (laughs) So the judge passed 15 life sentences, as well as a four-year sentence for forgery. Can't forget the forgery. It is important. You should not forge. (laughs) He commuted this to a whole life sentence, effectively removing any possibility of parole. Shipman was incarcerated at Durham Prison. The fact that a doctor had killed 15 patients sent a shudder through the medical community, but this was to prove insignificant in light of further investigations that delved more deeply into his patient case list history. Mm. Yeah. So this is all after him being convicted. He's in jail. Mm-hmm. It's fine. It's done. But police obviously wanted to go back and see what was the, happening. The damage that exactly. had been done. So after all of those examinations... By the end, it is estimated that Harold Shipman is the most prolific serial killer of all time. A clinical audit conducted by Professor Richard Baker examined the number and pattern of deaths in Shipman's practice and compared them with those of other practitioners and found that rates of death amongst his elderly patients were significantly higher, clustered at certain times of day, and that Shipman was in attendance in a disproportionately high number of cases. The audit goes on to estimate that he may have been responsible for the deaths of at least 236 patients over a 24-year period. Whoa. Yeah. it's a lot. I saw numbers going up to about 280, and I saw numbers going about to, like, over 200. And 236 is what I went with because this was the only one that had a name attached to it. Gotcha. Well, anything over zero is too many. Yeah. So, 200 anything, that's really bad. (laughs) I agree. And we'll never know. So, why did he kill? And this is up to conjecture, because we do not know. But there's anything ranging from he thinks that elderly people are like a drain on society, to he's just a psycho, to he likes the power of it, and so, and so on. The control of... Yeah. Yeah. And so on and so on. And honestly, I don't think it matters. It's horrible. Yeah. Throughout all of this, Shipman remained in his cell, continuously defending his case. In 2004, he was found hanging from his cell, having committed suicide. So he was in jail for four years. He was in jail for four years. Some say that there could be foul play involved, but I think most like authorities say it was suicide. So that was my report. Great. Yeah. That was really interesting. I thought so you're, too, yeah. You're really nailing the, the things I'm interested in. Good job. Oh, thanks. What have I done so far? I don't even remember. You did lion and this. 
yeah, thanks for sharing. Of course. I had a good time um, researching this. I will say I started researching it while you were away. Did you get scared all by yourself? I sure did. <laughs> I watched Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which isn't really a scary movie. It's just kind of odd. Okay. It's like Steven Spielberg's like second biggest movie. And I'd never seen it. Would not recommend it. <laughs> but yeah, it's just a little off-putting. And as I was watching that, I was researching this, and I was in the dark house by myself. So Is that, that when you texted me, the dark is scary? It might have been, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it was. So anyway, I stopped researching this and put it all away. Nice. Waited for you to come back. Waited for a better mental yeah. headspace. Needed my big, beautiful woman to protect me while I researched this. <laughs> Glad I could be of service. Of course. All right, now it's time for my report. Woo! There hasn't been six hours. Granular, powder, slush, and crust are all types of what? Rock. No. Sand? I put that under rock. <laughs> Am I getting warmer or colder? We need to get colder. Ice? Snow. I don't think you get the point of this. You're supposed to do... <laughs> Things that I like, episodic thing. You Cycle. literally said you wanted to talk about snowflakes, and here we are. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I could not for the life of me figure out what I wanted to do this topic. So I texted Sean, I was out of town, and I asked what the heck he wanted to know. About science. And he said he wanted to know about snowflakes. And then he gets on me. <laughs> I have one fun fact about snowflakes, that they're all identical, or not identical, the opposite of identical, they're all unique, which is great, but the angle between the six points, which there's always six points, is the exact same on every single snowflake because the water molecule, H2O, two hydrogens and an oxygen, the angle between the hydrogen and the oxygen is the same as the angle on a snowflake. So the mod affects... Something we can see with our eyes. Well, that's my report. That's good. Mine was long, so yours can be short. <laughs> so just really quickly to get into my report. Sorry. <laughs> so powder is preferred by skiing, by skiers, snowboarders. You know, they often say like, "Oh, yeah. fresh." Fresh powder. Yep. So that is. I've never been. I'd love to. Oh, I have been. Do you love it? It's fine. She loves it. I also don't like snow where the cold. So. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's good for skiing. It's soft. It moves easily, and it doesn't hurt when you fall. Which again, all great things <laughs> for people that fall. For at high speeds. Yeah. Just flying down. Yeah. Um, granular. Fallen style. Is preferred for snowmen and snowballs. This type is wetter and more dense, but is the worst for driving. And this happens hmm. because the flakes are covered with more frozen droplets. So, more water. Water. Yeah. What a concept. So, I grew up in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. My high school years. We never had a snow day, but we had a couple of cold days where, with wind chill, it was negative 40. And it was unsafe for kids to wait for the bus. So, they would have to cancel school. We would get eight feet of snow overnight, but school would go on as normal. Sounds awful. I hated it. And... Still do. I, I would be so happy to live the rest of my life without seeing snow. Yeah. You know what's fun on a nice hot summer day? To learn about snow. Good. It's, Is it that made, sarcastic? Yeah. 
It made me realize that I really do prefer warm to cold because in the middle of winter, I cannot wait for the sun to come out and for it to be 50 degrees warmer. It has been blazing hot for months and I work in a greenhouse. Yeah. I never once have been like, gosh, I wish it was cold and snowing. (laughs) Like, I just, for me, I go outside and I feel immediate pain and I hate that. It puts me in a bit of a bad mood, honestly. Yeah. To be fair, if you like cold snow, no shame, no judgment. We're just not those people. Yeah. I grew up in a desert. Alright, and then there's crust, and that's when the top layer is frozen solid because yeah. it'll the it'll be slightly warmer, mm-hmm. melted, and then overnight. Yeah, it's cold again. So mm-hmm. then it's just like a sheet. So that's like in Colorado, making that noise in my feet. Yeah, and now you know what kind of snow that is. Yeah, crust. Mm-hmm. And then the last is slush, which is when the ground is warm and melted. Like that. That's just like it's. Barely cold enough for it to be snowing. Mm. And then it gets slush, which we've all experienced. Yeah. (laughs) So what is a snowflake? Bunch of little water molecules. Frozen. It is essentially a very cold water droplet that comes in contact with a particle of pollen or dust. Key ingredient, snowflake. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. So don't make snow cones out of snow? Because you're just eating a bunch of allergens and dust? Mm-hmm. Huh. So then when it comes in contact with those, it creates ice crystals. As the new crystals form, water vapor freezes onto the original, building more. And this creates those six arms of a snowflake. A more accurate description, and this comes straight from the weather website. That's called... National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA.gov. <laughs> the ice crystals that make up snowflakes are symmetrical or patterned because they reflect the internal order of the crystal's water molecules as they arrange themselves in predetermined spaces, known as crystallization, to form a six-sided snowflake. Yeah. They are six-sided because they are made up of water, and water, H2O, two hydrogen, one oxygen, <laughs> They're naturally V-shaped when they come into contact with each other. This pattern is known as six-fold symmetry. Six-fold. Six-fold. And then the bond between the molecules is really weak, so that's why they always align in this six-fold symmetry, Mm -hmm. because it maximizes their attractive forces and minimizes their repulsiveness. Yeah, and that's also why they don't, they're all flat flat on one plane. Mm -hmm. The reason no two snowflakes are exactly the same is because no two snowflakes fall in the exact same way and in the same path. Just the same as humans, no matter how similar, make different choices every day. As they fall, they experience different atmospheric conditions, which affects the way they are shaped. A crystal might begin to grow arms in one manner, and then a few seconds later, a temperature will change, humidity will change, something will change, and it'll change like the growth pattern and stuff like. Interesting. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, that's cool. The biggest influences are temperature and humidity. Temperature is the bigger factor, and that determines the basic shape of the ice crystal. So with like the long, skinny needle ones, those are about twenty-three degrees Fahrenheit. 
And then like very flat, Disc. kind of boring looking ones. <laughs> Those are cold. It's called a flat plate. No, they're five degrees Fahrenheit. Cold. So let me ask you this. What is lake effect snow? It's just like a very humid area, so they get real large? Mm-hmm. Okay. I think so. I, I Have you ever seen lake effect snow? No. Like in Idaho, when we lived in Idaho, you'd be driving at night, you turn on your lights, and you see like little particles flying by the uh, headlights. In Wisconsin, you turn on your brights, and you cannot see because there's giant patches of white just flying at your car. And I remember, like, the first time I saw it, I was stunned. Like, it's just huge. I mean, I would by no means call myself an expert in snowflakes. More so than me. But the little research I've done, that makes sense to me. Yeah. The humidity means there's more water in the air. The water can attach to the like, already made crystals, so it would grow bigger mm-hmm. more rapidly. So that makes sense to me. Don't quote me on it, though. <laughs> would you say you're an unqualified expert? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All that being said, they can be classified into 35 different basic shapes. We're going through them. There are eight predominant ones. Column, plane, combination of column and plane, aggregation, <laughs> rimmed, germs, irregular, and other. I love it. <laughs> and in those eight, there are subcategories, which we will not get into. Ah, okay. So, Next time. Yes. Look at that. <laughs> Follow-up snowflake episode. So how do we know all of this? That one guy Yeah. that went outside and with the black sheet and took photos. Snowflake Bentley. It's like Johnny Appleseed. Real name, Wilson. Bentley. Oh, okay. So he devised a clever way of attaching his camera to a microscope so he could take photographs of the snowflakes in greater detail. And this is when he realized that no two snowflakes were exactly the same. Snowflake Bentley has a website. Whoa. When I went to it, I could sign up for his newsletter. Yeah, live? No. Oh, okay. He was born <laughs> in 1865. That's what I thought. I was like, I thought he was like around the first cameras. Yeah. Okay. So he is a little farmer from Vermont. And he was just really interested in weather. On January 15th, 1885, he became the first person to photograph a single snow crystal. He would eventually photograph over 5,000. Busy man. Because of all of his work, the study of meteorology, like, he really influenced that whole industry, I guess. <laughs> They're really, like, you can still access the pictures. I remember seeing them in elementary school. He wrote a book called Snow Crystals in 1931, and it's still in print today. He died in 1931, the day before Christmas Eve, and he died at the same place he was born. Fighting snowflakes. But he changed, he Meteorology? changed the game. Yeah. From this is just a cool quote for him. I'll be the judge. Under the microscope, I found that the snowflakes were miracles of beauty, and it seemed a shame that this beauty should not be seen and appreciated by others. Every crystal is a masterpiece of design, and no one design was ever repeated. When a snowflake melted, that design was forever lost. Just that much beauty was gone, without leaving any record behind. Honestly, that quote made me appreciate winter a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Still hate it. That's fine. And then just wrap up with two quick random facts that I couldn't really work into my report. Normally, so I stick on the end. I love it. On average, how fast does a snowflake travel? Six miles per hour. Three to four. Dang it. Yeah. Big ones can travel, like, I think, clocking in at nine. (laughs) All right. And then what color is a flake? White. Snow. 
transparent. Okay. <laughs> Water's transparent. Yeah. It looks white because light is bent when passing through transparent material, and there's so many little crystals and stuff like that the light is scattered across the visible light spectrum, making it look white. That's cool. That's my very short report. I enjoyed it. I feel like you covered it. The reason it took me forever to do this is because I feel like the things that you are interested in science, you already know about. Like, there's nothing that I could bring to the table. Because if you're interested in something, you look it up and you get it. Sean is so much better at science than I am. It's dumb. Science well, is my worst subject. We're also in a point in our lives where being good at science isn't really helpful anymore. <laughs> we're not great. It's pretty helpful to me. Oh, that's a good one. That is your job, huh? Yeah. Anyway, so I was, like, kind of intimidated. I didn't know, like, what I could teach you. And it's also hard to just kind of, like, lightly grasp a field science, of science. science topics. Yeah. I agree. Science, I think, so far, we've done three, have been the hardest. Yeah. To choose a topic for and to research and have them be interesting. Mm-hmm. That I being said, my first one. It was really good. I mean, I was just really interested in Oh, that one was really good. The um, food extinction. Mm-hmm. I would say that this one is my favorite. Harold Shipman. Because I'm rubbing off on you. No. you. If I watch a, a, like a docu-series or whatever on a serial killer, Sean does not watch with me. Which is fine. That's not true. We watched some. Remember that one about the hotel and that woman that died in the water? Yeah, but did you watch that because you wanted to? I think so. Did you complain a lot about it afterwards? I don't think so. Yeah. I really don't remember. Which is fine. <laughs> um, but anyway. Yeah, I don't know. I just like to not think about some aspects of most serial killers. Yeah. So. So I feel more aware of my surroundings. Mm-hmm. I literally just came home and I saw a man walking on the sidewalk and I like prepared myself. I was like, okay, what would I do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, could I enter the code quick enough? Could I use my keys? Could I blah, blah, blah? Yeah. And then they just kept walking. <laughs> As they always do. Yeah. Not always. Anyway. <laughs> I roll the die. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. As we wrap up the episode, we're going to roll a die to choose a topic for next week. We've done two so far. History. As it's on you. That's what I was going to say. Oh, we can't both do Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only reference we know. Yeah. Have we done... Nope, we haven't. Hamilton would be more entertainment, I guess, wouldn't it? Yeah. Or just the entertainment. Alright, well, you know the drill at this point. Subscribe and tell a friend. What's your new? If you've never, ever listened to any YouTube video or podcast. Happy fifth birthday or something. <laughs> and you should subscribe and tell a friend. Yeah. If a friend told you about this, go do it again. Give him a high five. Yeah, true. Not enough high fives. Thank you all so much for listening. If you would like to suggest our next topic or have a question for us, we might read it out on the podcast. Please email us at trivialconpod, C-O-N-P-O-D, and gmail.com. Until next time, folks.